What's the consequence if you think that people are entirely selfish? This basic assumption that economists have made has entered the culture and the consciousness of people. And what we have done over generations is that we have taught people to believe that people are perfectly selfish and rational. The capitalist system would, would fall apart. Indeed, any social system would fall apart if the people were psychopathic, as described by homo economicus. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. An honest conversation about how to make capitalism work for everyone. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, Senior Fellow at Civic Ventures. So in this episode of Pitchfork Economics, we're going to make the claim that homo economicus must die. Oh my God, who's that, Nick? <laughs> who's this guy you yeah, want to kill? It's really, really mean here. Uh, but in the interest of uh, full transparency, I think we should just say that if you're still with us in Pitchfork Economics, that means you're somewhat wonky and care a lot about these subjects. And this episode will be wonkier still. They right. So consider, we've talked about homo economicus on previous episodes in the past. Consider that your bachelor's degree. Yeah. On this episode, you're going to get your master's. <laughs> exactly. We're going deep in this episode on one of the most important assumptions that undergirds neoclassical economics, which is the assumption that economists make about how human beings behave. So to be clear, we're making... More than just the assertion that that behavioral model of homo economicus is wrong. In this episode, we are actually saying it must die. Yes. It is bad. It is destructive. Yes. It is the cause of harm. Yeah. So homo economicus, just to remind everybody, is a simplifying assumption that neoclassical economists make about what humans are and how they behave. And basically, it, it assumes that people are perfectly selfish and perfectly rational, uh, and that we are utility maximization machines, that we have consistent preferences, that we have no biases or the biases are randomly distributed. We use probabilistic reasoning, uh, that we are frame and context independent that we can do things like exponential discounting and that we have infinite cognitive abilities. We have time and infinite willpower and information and attention are broadly distributed. Now, here's the thing is that we now know with scientific certainty that none of those things are true. That in fact, the last 40 years of behavioral, psychological and sociological research shows unambiguously that people are not homo economicus, that we are actually homo sapiens, and that we are other regarding, reciprocal, approximating, heuristic, emotional, and moral. And the distinction, the difference between these two behavioral models has profound implications for economics. 
Okay, so before we tear down the totally perfect logical person Homo economicus has pegged us all as, let's build them up. After all, it's always best to know exactly what you're dealing with. And thankfully, we can do it with a little TV break. Space, a final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Hi, my name is Sarah Leibovitz, and I'm a producer here at Pitchfork Economics. And that, as you may already know, is the classic sci-fi television show Star Trek. And as nice a show as it is, I'm not just bringing it up for fun. I want to talk about one of the characters, specifically a dude named Spock. He's a half-Vulcan, half-human officer on the Starship Enterprise, and he's really got the whole like sci-fi look down. You know, he's got the pointed ears, the eyebrows that were drawn on with a ruler, and he's got a perfect sense of logic. How close will we come to the nearest Klingon outpost if we continue on our present course? One parsec, sir. Close enough to smell them. That is illogical, Ensign. Odors cannot travel through the vacuum of space. Which does come in handy on the Starfleet Enterprise, don't get me wrong. I mean, when you're battling hyperlogical androids, or you need someone willing to sacrifice themselves for the greater good, you've got your guy. But what happens when you ask Spock to go to a grocery store? Like friend of the pod Eric Beinocker does in his book, The Origin of Wealth. Let's say he walks into your local chain store and sees a carton of tomatoes. Going by Spock logic, his next series of thoughts are going to be something along the lines of... Tomatoes. I have a well-defined preference for tomatoes compared to literally everything else I could buy in the world, including bread, milk, and a vacation in Spain. Furthermore, I have well-defined preferences for everything I could possibly buy at any point in the future. And since the future is uncertain, I have assigned probabilities to those potential purchases. In the traditional economics model, all these well-defined preferences are also ordered very logically. So, if I prefer tomatoes to carrots, and prefer carrots to green beans, I will always take the tomatoes over the green beans. Likewise, if I prefer tomatoes to carrots, I won't suddenly go for the tomatoes simply because I saw some green beans. That's a lot to think about. Let's compare that to, say, Captain Kirk's thoughts upon seeing a tomato. Hmm, tomatoes. They look nice and pretty fresh. I'm kind of feeling a salad tonight. Price looks okay, too. Puts them in the shopping basket, continues on his day. I'm not trying to say that Spock or Logic don't have their uses, but the idea that a regular person is always going to be perfectly logical, is going to calculate their desire for tomatoes versus green beans in a flowchart and bring that along to the grocery store every time they go shopping, is ridiculous. And I mean, it's something that Star Trek itself points out again and again. Spock, remind me to tell you that I'm sick and tired of your logic. That is the most illogical attitude. Orbit in one minute. Because making people hyperlogical removes their humanity. It makes a person a data point, like that tomato. And I don't know about you, but I like to imagine I'm a little more complex than my preference in veggies. My thoughts and emotions are what sway my opinions, not the stock price of green beans. As Spock says, Logic is the beginning of wisdom, Polaris, not the end. 
So we're going to expand on these distinctions with our friend, the economist, Sam Bowles. And Sam Bowles has uh, pioneered a lot of the research on human behavior and may have single-handedly killed Homo economicus himself. <laughs> so should be an interesting conversation. Hey, Nick, how are you? I'm great. Well, we're a few minutes early. Is that all right? That's fine. Yeah, I just had to kick some people out of my house. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I'm joined by my colleague, David Goldstein. Hi, Say Sam. Hi, David. I, I just want to let you know that, that I've had to go through a whole education process the last uh, couple of years, and you might be the most cited researcher <laughs> in everything I've read. I see your name pop up more it, times than anybody else. That's right. If it's not Bowles, it's Gintis. Well, it's Bowles <laughs> and Gintis together. So. Anyway, okay. so let's start out. This episode is devoted to the idea of Homo economicus. The episode is entitled Homo economicus must die, which sounds dire and mean. So let's start by you explaining to us what the neoclassical sort of orthodox conception of Homo economicus is. Uh, Nick, I have to disagree with you right at the start. Okay. Homo economicus is dead. <laughs> it's already dead. <laughs> I mean, we could talk about something else, but I may, maybe I'll have to explain why I say that. But Homo economicus, as a matter of the science of economics and so on, simply is no longer part of the discourse of the people who do research in the relevant areas. But of course, you're right that it lives on in public pronouncements. It certainly lives on in the textbooks. And in the fields of economics where people are not actually studying the factual basis for human behavior, right. uh, it's alive and well. So here's the basic idea. It starts in a reasonable place. It says when we see people acting, they're trying to accomplish something. Uh, so our actions are purposeful. And then we want to find a way of formally modeling, that is using mathematics or using precise language, formally modeling how that works. So far, so good. Then we go a bit further and we make two assumptions about how they go about doing that. The first is how they think, and the second is what they think about. The how they think is, uh, it, it simply says that we try to think of the thing which is the most likely, or the utility associated with these various outcomes. We weight them by their probabilities, and that's called uh, the maximization of expected utility. So now we could think about, well, is that really what people do? Well, uh, maybe when you buy a house, you do that kind of thing. You do a lot of thinking about how much you're going to enjoy living there and so on. You may not do it accurately. You may have misinformation, but there are probably some realms of our life in which we kind of do that. Or attempt uh, to do that. Yes, attempt to do that. Yes. I mean, we maybe don't do it accurately. Yeah. Uh, but there are vast other parts of our lives in which we essentially uh, we work according to rules of thumb what we decide to eat and what we decide, uh, where we decide to go when we uh, take a walk or uh, all of these things, their habit or a lot of the stuff we decide to do, we decide viscerally. And again, this is this shouldn't be news to all of us. We act on impulse. We act because of anger, affection, fear, and so on. Um, these are things which, of course, are known by psychologists, but are just coming to be known by economists, that visceral behavior is really fundamental. 
And what's important about visceral behavior is it's not forward looking. It doesn't say, oh, if I do this, then that consequence will follow. When I run in terror from a snake, I don't think, oh, if I don't run, I might be bitten by the snake, therefore I should run. We, fortunately for human beings, we have an immediate reaction if we see something dangerous, we draw back from it. So human beings are equipped with lots of physical reactions to things, which part of the reason why we survive as a species. So the idea that we think about all of these futures and the probability that they may come about because of our actions, as I say, probably covers some of our activity, but not all. Okay. So we're not the perfectly rational, perfectly informed, perfectly probabilistic Vulcans that Homo economicus says we are. That's just not how we think. Hell, I I didn't even think that way when I bought my house. We just walked through it for 20 minutes and made an offer. But what about the second part, Sam, what we think about? The second part, we think about ourselves. That's what we think about. And we don't think about others except insofar as they're instrumental to our projects. Now, as I say, a whole series of experiments over the past 30 years where people have to divide things and they have to put their money down on certain options as opposed to others have shown that very few people are consistently selfish in this way. The majority of people violate that assumption in these experiments. Um, And so we say, well, it doesn't seem to be true in the experiments. And then you look at society and you say, well, of course it's not true. I mean, think of all the cases from very everyday ones, for example, obeying the law when you don't have to, when you could get away with it, Uh, everything from that to the firemen who entered the International Trade Towers when they knew those towers were coming down. I mean, those people, of course, were doing a heroic, altruistic thing. I'm sure many of them thought they would probably die, and they did. So anything from the everyday kindness we show to others, including respect for their needs and so on, is part of our own observation. Now, again, there's a backup, which the true believers in Homo economicus uh, will then say, well, you know, I don't know about your experiments. And by the way, mostly they don't know because they haven't bothered <laughs> And, you know, your, your introspection and your description of what your neighbors are like and so on, well, that's not what I see out there. I yeah. see basically people being pretty, uh, pretty selfish. But the clincher here, which is supposed to shut me up, is this. Natural selection could not have produced the kind of species that you're talking about. Uh, it just couldn't happen. What's the logic there? Well, according to natural selection, uh, the, the kinds of behaviors, the kind of ways of dealing with others that are going to spread are those that help the reproductive success, that is, number of children surviving to reproductive age, also known as biological fitness. So if I do something that sacrifices my biological fitness, helping you, for example, in some way that reduces my ability to have children, uh, then, uh, of course, uh, and suppose you don't do that, well, then you're going to have more kids than me, and they're going to be more people like you in the next generation. And if that goes on for three or four or five generations, it turns out most of the people are going to be like you, and there are very few like me. So that's the argument. Um, and that was thought to be the clincher until, of course, recent evidence uh, began to accumulate that there are lots of animals, not just humans, that engage in helping behaviors, uh, jointly parenting uh, the offspring and so on. 
And in the case of humans, our ancestors fought a lot of battles. Now, guess which groups might win those battles? Cooperative groups. The, gr <laughs> the groups in which people yeah. are willing to say, as yeah. a matter of fact, I'm going to help you out. Yeah. Uh, so the groups that had cooperators in them, in which the altruistic people had not been eliminated or reduced to insignificance, those are the groups that were going to survive those contests. And right. the same would be true even if they weren't having conflicts with other groups, because surviving in this highly volatile climate required a group to cooperate. Uh, so the groups that survived these tremendous changes in temperature, for example, um, we're probably the ones with a lot of cooperators in them. Okay, so homo economicus is just scientifically wrong on both the how and the what. We're not perfectly selfish creatures. We've actually evolved to be one of the most cooperative species on the planet. But so what? What are the real world consequences of getting human behavior so wrong? So the idea that has come through economics in the last three, 300 years is that there's nothing really wrong with self-interest as long as we can harness it, as long as we can channel it. And um, right after the stock market crash of 1987, I know it's hard to remember that far back, but we do have them from time to time. The New York Times had a headline uh, which said, ban greed, question mark? No, harness it. Um, and it went on to say, there's nothing wrong with greed as long as we can channel it towards social ends. And that's basically the paradigm that we now have in economics for public policy. Uh, ban greed? No. Harness it. Um, and there's a lot wrong with that. Um, uh, and I think the, perhaps the most important is this. If you treat people as if they're entirely selfish, they tend to act that way. Yes. The second problem with this view is that partly for that reason, uh, these ideas of incentivizing everything by essentially harnessing self-interest, uh, they don't work very well, and they certainly cannot address the basic problems facing humanity today. We cannot design incentives which would be good enough so that the environment will be saved for entirely selfish people who don't care about future generations. There's no way to design a kind of what's called in economics, a mechanism that'll do that. The same is true for the production and use of knowledge. There's no way we can get that done, spreading knowledge around, using it well, and so on, purely on the basis of self-interest. This is one of the reasons why I have so many dilemmas about um, intellectual property rights. So I want to press farther, though. I, I, I think that homo economicus is actually even more pernicious of an idea than you have thus far explained, because I think that n not only does telling people that people are selfish lead them to act selfishly, but that it also tells a story about economic cause and effect, which is super pernicious. It, it, it's a feedback loop, which is to say that if you embed the idea in the culture that people are essentially biologically, we, that we are objectively selfish, and you let those people look around the world at all the prosperity and goodness in it, then they must reason logically. It must be true that billions of individual acts of selfishness magically transubstantiate into prosperity and the common good. That selfishness is the cause of prosperity. And therefore, the more selfish we are, the more prosperity we create. Absolutely. Now, in, in recent years, meaning maybe the last 
30 years, uh, there's been a new twist in economics. The new element is this, applying economic reasoning to the political sphere and to the social sphere, we now say that any group that organizes must be uh, like a cartel or a monopoly that's trying to rip everybody off. Yeah. So if you are trying to build a policy framework within a context of cause and effect explanation, uh, which grants cooperation, it's essentially it's rightful place. Well, you're going to come up with a very different list of policies <laughs> than if you believe that selfishness is the cause essentially of prosperity. And I think that it's so important culturally, politically and socially to make this pivot, to get people to recognize in a more reasonable way how the world works and where prosperity comes from and what innovation is. Otherwise, you know, we're going to be moving backwards and not forwards. Absolutely. I think in thinking about where prosperity comes from, we should think of two dimensions. Uh, my students always uh, make fun of me because I always think in two by two tables. That's about as complex as my mind will work. <laughs> we should think about individuals as being selfish or cooperative. That's a, that's about individual behavior. And then we should think about social systems. And we can have capitalism and then other social systems and so on. The capitalist revolution is given credit for, and I think correctly given credit for, the vast increase in per capita income in the countries which have experienced this capitalist revolution, starting with UK, expanding around the world now, even hitting India, China, and so on. That is a capitalist phenomenon that did that, but it was not based on individual self-interest. No. The capitalist system would, would fall apart. Indeed, any social system would fall apart if the people were psychopathic, as described by homo economicus. So... so would it be fair to say, rather than a system based on self-interest, capitalism uh, properly operating as a system based on mutual interest? I think it's based on both. I mean, I think that I think that the uh, the evidence of an experimental nature and also introspection does not lead me to conclude that people are not self-interested some of the time in some situations sure. and so on. Uh, and I think that self-interest is a part of the way that markets work and so on. I think the key error in homo economicus is the extremism of the idea that that's all that we are. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, if we think about uh, a reconstruction of the idea of who are human beings, who, what is society, self-interest will continue to play some role, but it will be along with the empirically verified aspects of human behavior, which are the antithesis of self-interest. Yeah. Uh, all of those things will be there. And I think firms work and by a combination of the two, and so does capitalism. And I think we could probably do better in harnessing these human beings as we really are in a society which was more democratic in the way it ran its economic affairs, because we can expect people to pay attention to what goes on around them and to find ways of cooperating to find solutions. This has been so great. Uh, we're so appreciative of your time, and I hope to see you actually physically soon. Yeah, I'm sure our paths will cross. We yeah. seem to be thinking the same way. I love it. Okay, okay thank you so much. Yeah, to okay. be continued. Bye. Great. Bye. Bye. Okay, so Nick, now we know what homo economicus is and why it's wrong. Let's talk a little bit about why it matters. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it matters in two really profound ways. The first is 
that it's just objectively untrue. Right. Right. And it's misleading uh, that the idea that people are perfectly selfish and perfectly rational. We now know with scientific certainty that that's not true. Right. And if you have bad economic theory, that leads to bad economic policy and bad, bad results. forecasts right. and all, all that kind of stuff. Right. It, it leads you to believe things which are not true about the economy. And that belief enables you to build models that actually don't resemble the real world and then mislead you in all sorts of ways. And, but that, there, and that's where great recessions come from. Exactly. But there's another way in which it's bad and consequential, which is in the normative way, in the way that it affects the culture. Because if you teach people that people are selfish, then they come away believing that they should be selfish. <laughs> and that is not a great thing and, and, for human society. And they end up behaving selfishly. more selfishly. Yeah. And, and we know this because there are actual studies that show that <laughs> economic students yeah. act more selfishly. After you teach them economics. Right. You right. take Econ 101, right. you will be more selfish than somebody who didn't. Because the basic theoretical framework is that selfishness causes prosperity. And so therefore, being selfish is good. Right. Uh, but you know, if on the other hand, we, uh, we understand human, human beings and hum, homo sapiens as they are as, yeah, of course, occasionally self-interested and selfish, but largely cooperative, uh, other regarding and reciprocal, then you have to conclude that it's cooperation largely and morality that is generating the prosperity around you. And, and, and understanding the world in that way can help you build better models and better economic policy, but it also will lead you to building a better culture because instead of encouraging, actively encouraging people to be selfish, you're actively encouraging them to be cooperative and generous and other regarding and so on and so forth. So you just end up in a much, much better circumstance. So if we believe that the invisible hand wasn't the selfish part of our nature, but the cooperative right. and reciprocal part of our nature, right. we're going to emphasize the part of our behavior that actually leads to prosperity, leads to yes. more trust, more cooperation, more complexity, and thus more prosperity. Exactly. And that's why this matters so much why, and why it's not an academic dispute over behavioral models. It's actually a really important fight that affects people's lived experience every day in the world. Right. If, if we want to create a better world, homo economicus must die. So, Nick, you've been asking our listeners if they have any questions, and we got one via email from John Tebbett. Excuse yep. the pronunciation if yep. I got that wrong. Uh, and it's actually more of a suggestion than a question. I'll summarize this. He says it, it feels like you use the term workers a lot, and he's afraid that that's got a kind of socialist uh, yeah. ring to it. Connotation. Socialism, death panels, government <laughs> control, a little terrifying to a lot of people. And he wonders if maybe it would be easier on the American ear to refer to people as just people. After all, that's what we are, and we all need a job. What do you think, Nick? Do you need a job? I don't need a job, which is why we use the term workers, is that there actually is a growing distinction in our economy between people who work 
and people who clip coupons. Right. And right. so, well, do you clip coupons? Well, no, T-bills. other people, other people <laughs> clip the coupons for, for me. Right. You, <laughs> <laughs> right. So, but, uh, <laughs> so the distinction yeah. here, if we were to follow John's suggestion, yeah. there'd be workers. I'm a worker and you're a person. Yeah. So one of the, so this is a really interesting question of, of nomenclature right. and values and language and positioning. And I guess, I think one of the really interesting things that's happened in our economy is that the term workers traditionally meant more working class people, right? right? People at the bottom end of the socioeconomic spectrum. Distinguished from the middle class. Yes, and from white collar workers. Right. But over the last 40 years, one of the really, I mean, you call it interesting, it's also horrifying things that's happened is that everyone in the bottom nine deciles, the bottom 90% of the income spectrum has been left behind by economic growth. And so folks that ordinarily would have considered themselves super upwardly mobile, white collar, and part of the elite in many ways have been left behind. And I just think, it, you know, like it's just accurate to call people who work for a living workers. And that's why we've, you know, got, gotten comfort with it. And there is a distinction in my mind between people who work for a living and do what other people tell them to do and people who are the owners of enterprises and, and, and control capital. Of yeah. Owners of capital. And this makes an important distinction, which underlie, underlies uh, much of the growing income and wealth inequality in the country is that people like me who work, uh, most of our income comes on a W-2. It, right. it, it comes in the form of, of earned income yes. from work. People like you, yeah. the bulk of your income comes from capital gains. You are... Yeah. Or, you know, not, non-earned income. Non-earned income. Yeah. You are earning profits on your assets. Yeah. What we used to call unearned income. Yes. Why don't yeah. we call it that anymore? I don't know. because. And why do we advantage unearned income over earned income? That seems unfair. I think that may be neoliberalism. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we agree, John. Uh, we understand it's a word that could set other people off. But I don't know what. you. Maybe you'd prefer we distinguish, instead of workers, we call them proletariat? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thanks for the question. And again, we welcome your questions. Please email us at pitch at pitchforkeconomics.com or leave us a voicemail at 731-388-9334. On the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we look at spatial inequality and whether cities are killing rural America. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media, that's L-A-R-J Media, and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks. And you should also follow Nick Hanauer on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests and thank you to our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jasmine Weaver, Jessen Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Nick Casella, and Annie Fadley. Thanks for listening. America. I can't say it. Rural.
Rural, I can't. I had so many years of speech therapy. It's so hard to get past this.